Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. One thing we've tried to stress this season is that politics isn't just about who's at the top of the ticket. It's not about a day in November. It's about the issues that affect people's lives day in and day out, year after year. Or even decade after decade, as the case may be. So far, we've covered a lot of issues that people have been fighting for since the 50s and 60s, and in some cases, ever since the country was founded. But one of the most pressing issues on people's minds this year is, of course, healthcare. This pandemic has exposed gaps in insurance coverage, has exposed gaps in access to hospitals, and the accompanying recession has cost even more people their health insurance. And it's hard to build a safety net when everything is collapsing at once. Welcome back to The Reckon Interview. I'm R.L. Nave. And I'm John Hammondtree. And this week, we're discussing the politics of healthcare. The South, as we know, is a region that has been most resistant to Medicaid expansion. And most of our states are dominated by just one or two options for health insurance. Every year, we're hearing more and more about rural hospitals closing, and the system is just overwhelmed. And like with almost everything in the South, that's hitting Black Southerners the hardest. This week, we speak with Dr. Andrea Patterson, an expert on the history of healthcare in the South, about how our medical system has always been tied to race, and how that hurts everyone, not just Black Southerners. We also talked to Olivia Pascal, a reporter who's been covering healthcare and labor for Facing South. She joins us to discuss the impact of Medicaid expansion in states like Arkansas and Louisiana that have expanded Medicaid, as well as the movements on the ground right now. Now, we did have a few small issues with Dr. Patterson's microphone, and apologize for that in advance. But if you listen closely, the insight she shares has never been more vital than it is right now. So let's go ahead and get started on this week's episode of The Reckon Interview. Okay, Dr. Andrea Patterson, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor. We are, of course, in the middle of a global pandemic. It has exposed weaknesses in the healthcare system around the world, but has perhaps exposed unique weaknesses in our healthcare system in the South, particularly along racial lines. Throughout your career, you have studied the, the history of race in healthcare. Can you talk to us a little bit about maybe how we got to this point where we are seeing disproportionate number of Black Southerners dying of COVID compared to to white Southerners? Yes, and I think even you know start with some very recent numbers in January of this year, and this was before the pandemic. Right, we had 2.3 million Americans falling into the so-called coverage gap, which is you know the are not eligible for Medicare, but they still don't have the funds to buy into health insurance. Now, 92% of these are in the South. So nine out of 10 people who are not eligible reside in the South. And that affects 
huge disproportionality people of color. Another fact is that in the South, we have the largest population of color today, 42% as compared to 35% in the rest of the nation, and 20% of the population is black. And I think it is impossible to argue about the reluctance to extend healthcare and the eagerness to opt out of the ACA and refuse extending Medicare is so prominent in the South, we cannot see that there is not a connection to race, that there is not a long-standing thought process in place that is just looking at um, racial health disparities as something that should not be addressed to the fullest extent. And I think in order to understand that and in order to really understand why there is such an unwillingness or why there is such an acceptance of, you know, this racial health disparity without any follow-up action to address that, we have to go back in history. We have to kind of look at it in a historic context. In the 18th and 19th century, biologists, academics, medical doctors, scholars, very renowned individuals, the elite of the intelligentsia and academia, created a conception of race that manifested itself biologically. In other words, all racial differences were explained as the cause of biological causes. There's excessive morbidity and mortality among Black people because they are, back then they would say, biologically inferior. And in the context of the late 19th, even early 20th century, we have the social Darwinist ideology, we have eugenics, there was actually an argument made that it would be harmful to extend public health to Black people, because that was, in the words of the leaders in, in the healthcare and public health at that time, would work against nature. It would actually prolong what is inevitable, which is the extinction of the unfit races. Eugenicists, of course, went even further and thought we can hasten this along and actually accelerate it through involuntary sterilization. So we have this really ugly history, particularly in the South where the majority of people of color resided at that time, of consciously and very deliberately not including Black people in healthcare for these reasons. And it's entrenched in this idea that the biological differences can't be addressed, right? There was no acknowledgement that morbidity and mortality was due to poverty, to neglect, to discrimination. And, and I mean, that goes back to, to slavery. We've had racial health disparities in this country ever since the United States existed. Excessive morbidity and, and mortality during slavery but again, it was not argued that it was due to sexual abuse, to separation, through overwork, horrendous living conditions. No, it was because of the difference, the biological differences in races. In effect, the argument about genetic differences, it seems almost untenable because you would have to argue that black people have genes in every single category that make them more predisposed to disease, right? I mean, what would be the chance of that? Well, and I think what's interesting is that, you know, this idea of race being biological is a lot more recent than most people would understand and believe, and that in many cases, this construct was used to justify or to mask existing racist policies, not to 
explain them or to interpret them. That in some ways, some of the science was was used as reason to continue bad behavior, not true science. Absolutely. It was very difficult after the American Revolution and our wonderful declaration of independence to, to justify, you know, continued slavery. And also in terms of gender, right? I mean, women in the 18th century and, and slaves were very hopeful because, you know, this idea of equality being articulated. And so as a result, I think we had to come up with a different justification. And we did that for both for women and for people of color, right? They are biologically different. That's they don't have the same intellect. That's why they can't vote. That's why they cannot receive full citizenship. So because who can argue against quote unquote biological differences? If someone is just not smart enough to be a citizen, if somebody's not healthy enough, if somebody is, you know, too weak, these ideas about the weak female gender, for example, that is also an invention of the 19th century. These biological differences between men and women. Of course, we had inequality before, right? What, what prior was uh, you know, justified socially or through religion. But when that falls away because we declared equality and we actually separated the state from church, how do you substitute the system of oppression, be it along gender lines or be it along racial lines? And so we really see the rise of biological justification of difference. Well, one thing that you mentioned that I'm particularly interested in is this predisposition, this belief that we have that race is biological has led to the South being a part of the country that has underfunded public health care for decades. You know, we haven't expanded Medicaid. There are fewer rural hospitals in, in the Black Belt in, in Alabama and other Southern states. So what is the connection between that belief on the science side versus healthcare policy that honestly it hurts black southerners but it also hurts a lot of poorer white southerners who fall in that coverage gap as well you know it seems to have had long term ramifications across the south as a whole right and i think that is a very important point that you're raising john that it's this idea that it's okay to neglect the population of colors but it always comes back to haunt us. Health is a community issue. Everything is a community issue. A poverty in one area spills over into another area. The decision not to extend healthcare, for example, not to have preventative healthcare, 84% of our expenses go into chronic diseases. Particularly now, we have to realize we are in a new age of infectious diseases. This COVID will not be the last this coronavirus is the third. It's the third coronavirus, right? We had SARS and MERS and this particular virus of COVID. All of these jumped the zoonotic barrier, meaning they left their animal host and jumped the human barrier. In this new age of infectious diseases, it is instrumental to have a healthy community for everybody because disease spills over and disease translates into economic loss right, into job loss, and ultimately causes incredible financial burden. Uh, the irony is that we actually spend a lot of money on healthcare, but we treat people for preventative diseases in the emergency room. Another topic that I'm curious about, we've seen some polling in recent weeks that suggests that Black Americans, Black Southerners may be less likely to trust a COVID vaccine in the immediate aftermath. There is, of course, you were talking about medical racism. There's a long history of cases 
in which Black Americans would reasonably not trust the healthcare system. You know, I'm thinking of the Tuskegee trials, for example. How does that affect the healthcare disparities in the South? And how do you bridge that gap? If there's reason for Black Americans not to currently trust the healthcare system, how do you solve that problem? Absolutely. And Tuskegee is no exception. Again, a long-standing history of medical exploitation and medical experimentation on Black people. It goes back to slavery when uh, James Marion Sims, you know, the revered gynecologist that only two years ago had the statue removed, finally, who would practice uh, his surgeries on Black women without anesthesia. And only when he got it right, you know, would operate on white women, of course, with anesthesia. Going back to that, what I mentioned about this idea that Black people do not feel pain to the same degree. He operated on even on infants, on black babies without anesthesia, skull surgeries and all kind of involved um, experimental surgeries. We have Tuskegee, but we, we have so many other instances. I mentioned, I think, before some of the eugenic decisions being made and involuntary sterilization, again, to a disproportionate amount. Uh, people of color were being uh, sterilized um, without consent, often without their knowledge. The famous civil rights leader, Fannie Lou Hammer, in 1961, who went in for a uterine tumor, and she came out with a hysterectomy on top of it. Wow. Uh, and, and that is not unusual. We, we had sterilization clinics, beginning with Margaret Sanger, with her infamous Negro project. She had two locations in North Carolina and in Tennessee, with the clear intent, as she said, to reduce the populations of Negroes, in her words. But it didn't stop there. Even after World War II, after the Holocaust, involuntary sterilization was allowed to continue predominantly on people of color until the 1970s. The story goes on and on and on. Tuskegee is very prominent uh, because of the duration and because of all of the atrocities, but there's so many other medical experimentations. The early IUDs in uterine devices for birth control were tested on black women and caused actually an epidemic of silent death because of the high degree of infections associated with the birth control pill. So if you say, why would black people be reluctant in, in, in using a vaccine? There is such a continuation of difference in quality of care when we treat black patients in, in this country. And that breeds distrust and that its reluctance. It is actually part of why I think contributes to the high numbers of uh, morbidity and mortality because Black patients are less likely after negative experiences with a white health professional. And there's a big problem. In the South, we have 20% of the population is Black, but less than 4% of the doctors and medical health professionals is Black. So mostly they're, they're facing non-Black healthcare providers, and they're less likely to, to schedule a follow-up appointment if they had a disparaging or disappointing experience. They're less likely to adhere to treatment suggestions or schedule routine exams, all of which, of course, exasperating health conditions. I think what we have to come to grips with, so what we need to acknowledge, you're asking what can we do to improve that, I think we need to acknowledge these systemic inequities and disparate quality in care. Let me give you one example. 
peripheral vascular disease often requires amputation, but also there are salvage procedures. And so 42% of amputations happen for Black people, yet the number for white people is 29%, meaning that doctors try so much harder to save the limb in white patients and are much more likely to decide on amputation. And I mean, this is almost double the number, right? We have 29% to 43% prostate cancer. Black uh, male patients are much more likely to have their testicles removed, whereas white patients receive treatment that tries to retain the testicle and remove the cancer without doing the simplest surgery, which is just testicle removal. And, and it goes on and on and on. Even you think such as time spent with the patient. On average, physicians spend less time with people of color. And on the bottom are black women. Black women receive the least amount of time in a communication with, with doctors. And when you ask doctors why there is such discrepancy, they say things like, oh, well, they won't understand what I tell them anyway, or they, they will not follow my recommendations anyway. They're passive. They're not involved in their own health care. And it's this really this, this kind of jargon that it's not surprising that African-Americans are distrustful. And this distrust adds to stress and adds exasperating the disease, of course, and in the unwillingness to seek care, you know, postponing seeking care. Because if every encounter is so unpleasant or such a negative experience. So the solution then, of course, is we need to first train white doctors and white healthcare professionals better. We need to really expose the history of medical racism and make sure that healthcare providers are aware of this you know, biological concept of disease and of, in research as well as in treatment. So we don't have this intentional decision-making. If you're more aware of it, you may not make these decisions. So training and acknowledgement of the distrust and the suspicion that they are real and that they are justified, that's important. Increasing the number of healthcare professionals among people of color, promoting access to medical schools, to training, providing equal access. So we increase the number dramatically because it's so disproportionate and it's part of the problem. There was a report in the American Economist, I want to say in 2019, so just last year, that estimated that the mortality due to cardiovascular disease among Black people would be reduced by 19% if they were able to see a Black physician. That is staggering. One of this can be avoided just by seeing a practitioner of your own background that you feel more comfortable communicating with, that you do not feel judged or criticized. And that's another thing that we need to do. We need to move away from blaming the victim. This is true in general, but more so for people of color. But in general, we've moved away from a comprehensive healthcare to one that's for profit. And so what we like to do is blame people for their lifestyle, for their diet, for you know, their actions causing their disease. But what we don't realize is that individuals are not, in, in general, are not responsible for disease when they are born out of poverty or because there is a lack of education. Coming up after the break, Dr. Andrea Patterson explains why expanding healthcare insurance 
may not be enough to eliminate health disparities. And Olivia Pascal outlines the work that's being done in the South right now. For AL.com, I'm Ben Flanagan. This is Outbreak Alabama, stories from a pandemic. When people say this is just a light flu or a bad cold, I mean, it's not, that's not accurate. I mean, it's worse than that. It really is. My mask protects everyone else and everyone else's mask protects me. We didn't think we would be where we are right now with rising cases. We're going to be there. You know, we may be the last one standing. I hope that's not the case, but we're committed to, to being open. Outbreak Alabama. Stories from a pandemic. Search Outbreak Alabama on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, if you speak to middle class, upper middle class, affluent people in, in some of the major cities across and suburbs across the South, you know, people that are predominantly white but have access to world-class care at Emory or at UAB or at Vanderbilt, people who have that luxury look at maybe European model of care and say, oh, well, if we had universal access to care, I would have to wait for surgery you know, I, would, I wouldn't be able to choose my doctor. I wouldn't be able to get dental care, things like that. Obviously, that leaves out the number of people who, who don't have coverage in America. But for people who do have access to good care right now, what would be some of the potential drawbacks for a, a switch to Medicare for all or, or to another form of universal coverage? I think in general, there is this misconception that it's an either or. In Europe, there is universal health care. One also has, who wants to, has access to private health insurance. So if you want to continue your private insurance with all the perks and whistles and all the, the choices, that is fine. And you have to pay out of pocket. But for people who, uh, you know, to, to have that PPO or what, whatever it is, and that is available. And I think our communication about these issues is, is so slanted because universal health care does not mean it substitutes private insurance. Private insurance can still be offered to those who can afford it. But we can't say just because we don't want to give up on private insurance, we will not give health insurance to the people who can't afford it. And average insurance Today in the market, you know, just average, nothing bells and whistles, is between three and four hundred dollars a month for a young person who is a non-smoker. That comprises of almost eighty percent of the salary on the lower income bracket of the people in that gap, and about thirty-five percent of the people on the higher end. This is impossible. But offering universal health care, we create these fear factors that then everybody would lose their own health insurance. And no, you can still buy your private health insurance, but universal health insurance would help everybody else. We would have a much healthier population. We, we look at this, the COVID statistics, 4% of the world population are Americans, yet we have 25% of the cases. And we have a disproportionate fatality rate. And we're comparing ourselves with, we're worse than Mexico and India. And what that really shows us is this systemic decade-old system of really just using a Band-Aid situation, right? Emergency care and emergency room care, health care, instead of preventative care. One thing I wanted to mention, too, we have a history in this country of 
kind of a grassroots community health efforts. And we had it in the early 1900s. We had, you know, the Tuskegee Mobile School. We had the Alpha Kappa Alpha Mississippi Project. And we had um, community health houses in the urban center. And today as well, some of these sororities are still very active, focusing on community participatory research. And what that does, it doesn't just address the disease but it actually looks at the community and tries to solve local problems. If we create community health centers, and I'm by no means suggesting that they supplant and, and substitute quality access to doctors and hospitals, but these community health centers could do a lot to prevent chronic conditions to develop. And what, but what it really takes is we would have to engage the community, local people, have to be in charge for local problems. We would have, you know, nurses from the community serving the community, full-time nurses in schools, and door-to-door -door visits. That is something that is very promising because a doctor in, during an office visit often will not understand the circumstances. A nurse that goes into a home will find out that the reason that the insulin is not working is because there's no electricity. And so the insulin cannot be refrigerated. Or, you know, a patient goes into hypoglycemic shock because they drew too much insulin because at night there is no light and they can't really see how much they... I mean, we cannot imagine the extent of poverty. I think we like to not look at the fact that we have, you know, expansive poverty in this country where people literally are without electricity. And so their medication cannot be uh, stored appropriately. Right? It's not even not having access to medication, but even if you have access to medication, then we need a comprehensive medical system that works together with civic leaders, with politicians, with the media like yourself, you know, bring awareness to the community about that. Um, educators from the schools, nurses and healthcare providers from the community that can add 15 to 20 percent to job creation to actually restore some wealth to the community by having a comprehensive healthcare system available in the local community that can address some of the issues before they become chronic conditions. I mean, the Affordable Care Act recognizes that and they promised, I don't think they have done that yet, but they promised to add another $11 billion to kind of double some of these community health services. That is crucial. Because that would, you know, address the issues of trust, because then you would talk to people from your own community who share your frustrations, who share your experiences, who understand the poverty and rather than blame you for the poverty and talk down to you. I think this is what's instrumental to really make this a cooperative effort that addresses economic and social well-being and health together. Ooh, we covered a lot of ground in that conversation, and frankly, it was a little daunting. But one point that we should hammer home is what Dr. Patterson said about disease and race. In the South, we know that Black people are disproportionately affected by rates of chronic illness and disease, and the odds of Black people being biologically predisposed to everything are virtually impossible. So that means that the causes are likely environmental and structural. Stuff like people living near polluting plants or interstates or even just being pushed out of the traditional healthcare system. 
These are issues that can't just be addressed by individual behavior. They're going to take society being committed to caring for all of its citizens. So what does that look like in the South right now? Well, it's a mixed bag, to put it mildly. Olivia Pascal of Facing South covers healthcare and labor. She joins us next to explain access to care during the pandemic and what steps states can take moving forward. Okay, Olivia Pascal, thanks for coming on The Reckon Interview. Thank you for having me. It seems fair to say that the last few months have really shown a spotlight on the health disparities in the South and the impact that politics can have on health care. Most of the Southeast has not expanded Medicaid. Broadly speaking, what have you seen when it comes to health care in the Southeast? Yeah, so one of the things um, that I spent a lot of reporting energy on, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, was in states that haven't expanded Medicaid particularly rural hospitals have been closing at a very, very high rate, especially in the South. Rural South has lost in the thousands of hospital beds in just the last five years. Um, we've seen you know, dozens of closures, and that is really impacting, especially in the Southeast, it impacts poor Black rural populations the most. Those are also the populations that have been hit particularly hard by this pandemic. And so the reason that you know Medicaid expansion is such a big deal when you're talking about rural hospitals is that when people come to an emergency room, the hospital is going to treat them. They have to treat them. That's in their code of ethics. If the patient is uninsured, the hospital isn't going to get reimbursed for that care. Medicaid expansion expands insurance rates and means that, you know, if a patient shows up to an ER or to a doctor with symptoms of some serious illness, the hospital isn't going to be responsible for floating the cost of their care. You know, when hospitals go in the red, they're not necessarily going to close, but a lot of them do. Um, And it's a pretty strong predictor of which ones will close. So the pandemic has really exacerbated a lot of these health disparities that had already existed for a long time and just really made them much more pronounced and made a lot of rural healthcare advocates really concerned about the access for care in vulnerable populations, you know, in the Black Belt, but also in other rural areas in Appalachia. Well, and and we're seeing overlapping crises. You know, there were obviously a lot of people who were in this coverage gap before the pandemic took place, and they've struggled to get access to care. But we've also seen hundreds of thousands of people across the Southeast losing their jobs because of the pandemic. And if you don't have the social safety net beforehand, it's very hard to build it after the fact. Where are we seeing, you know, some of these rural healthcare advocates, where are we seeing people push forward with Medicaid expansion? Some of the most active folks in the fight for Medicaid expansion, in terms of on-the-ground grassroots efforts, a lot of organizing is happening in North Carolina, a lot is happening in Alabama, and we had a few states on the sort of border of the South (laughs) expand Medicaid, and recently are going to expand Medicaid in the last few weeks here, Missouri and Oklahoma, but in terms of on-the-ground expansion efforts, really, like North Carolina and Alabama are both. Folks in both of those states have sort of hit the ground. Tennessee is a state that has been trying, their state legislature has been trying for several years to get Medicaid expanded, but has had a lot of industry pushback, is my understanding. You know, they had like even a Republican lawmaker introduce legislation to try to expand it earlier this year, and that got, you know, shot down. In North Carolina, the Democratic governor in its budget, and it was state lawmakers and the Republican General Assembly vetoed it. There's been really nasty infighting there in the last year. And Essentially, during the pandemic, it's been all but tabled because they're just sort of trying to put a band-aid on the crisis that exists now. And there's been efforts, I know, by Senator Doug Jones from Alabama and others to pass legislation on the congressional level that would basically 
give states that newly passed Medicaid the same deal that states got when it first passed with 100% federal compensation that would taper out over time. That hasn't passed yet, but it's certainly trying to incentivize a lot of those states that have not expanded Medicaid to do so. Let's talk a little bit about, I guess, what that means to expand Medicaid. It hasn't happened much in the South, but it has happened in your home state of Arkansas. It's happened in Louisiana. And then it has just recently passed in what we'll call South adjacent states of Oklahoma and Missouri just last month. How has it equipped states like Arkansas to combat things like the coronavirus versus states like Alabama? Yeah, so Arkansas is interesting because we were actually one of the first states to expand Medicaid, you know, right when the ACA happened. And we did it under what's called, well, it's some sort of waiver, like the Section 115 waiver or something like that. But it's under the private option. So basically, it allows people on Medicaid to buy in the private marketplace for insurance. And when that happened, you know, what I've heard since, I wasn't reporting then, I was in college, but what I've heard since from people in the healthcare policy industry is that the way it was done in Arkansas was sort of seen as a way that Medicaid expansion could be palatable in the South versus the more conservative state houses and, you know, what were then newly read state legislatures. And so at the time that the private option passed in Arkansas, or that they got that worked out, we, I believe, had still a Democratic governor, very moderate Democratic governor very popular moderate Democratic governor, and had a newly red state legislature, newly Republican. But at the time, it was much less polarized than it is now. Um, and the incoming governor was also pretty moderate Republican, sort of like two sides of the same coin. And so they got it through Arkansas, and that was sort of supposed to be the way that it would be packaged in other southern states. What has happened is that you have some states that have done, you know, similar things. So you have that recently, you know, Louisiana, Kentucky more recently have done it. Virginia recently expanded Medicaid. But it's become, you know, because it's connected in part to the ACA, to like Obamacare, it's like a bit of a scary thing for Republicans to touch, especially as these state houses get more polarized. Have States like Arkansas and Louisiana been able to keep open more of their rural hospitals than states like North Carolina and Alabama? Oh, yeah. So there's really well-documented research on this. There is a glaring disparity between states that expanded Medicaid and how many hospital closures they've had versus states that have not. It's like, I have a map that I put together, you know, back in March or April, looking at this, and it is like just far, 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 far fewer rural hospitals have closed. And that is, you know, when you talk to rural health advocates and rural hospital advocates, the number one thing that they will tell you, and they'll always say, you know, we're not political and we don't want to get into partisan politics. And, you know, we're really not political at all, but the data bears out that Medicaid expansion is like the one thing that can really help a rural hospital stay afloat because, you know, rural uninsured rates are so high in the South, especially. Let's talk a little bit about the issues we've been seeing with essential workers in the last several months. You know, there's the question of Medicaid expansion and whether or not it would cover them. But there's also a lot of these people who are working at grocery stores or chicken plants or factories don't necessarily have healthcare coverage through their employer either. And so these workers that we have deemed essential, we've seen high COVID-19 positive rates among many of these groups. How is the workforce adapting on the private side of things? Yeah. So, you know, you have all these safety precautions that people like Tyson and, you know, some of the other poultry processing giants will put in place, things that Walmart has put in place. Tyson extended or made more accessible its short-term disability policy. It said so that its employees could get tested and get leave more accurately or more quickly if they needed to quarantine. But I'm still hearing, you know, I talk to poultry workers pretty frequently and 
a lot of the folks who are working in these plants, Tyson aside, you know, a lot of the smaller plants, a lot of the smaller companies aren't giving as good health benefits as, you know, some of the bigger companies like Tyson or JBS or something might be able to. And on top of that, you know, the poultry workforce and the essential worker workforce is more likely to be people who don't have access to either, you know, health insurance through Medicaid, or, you know, a lot of folks are in the poultry workforce, especially, which is what I talk about the most because it's what I've been reporting on. A lot of those folks, you know, many of them are immigrants, many are undocumented. In parts of the South, uh, including Arkansas, there's a large portion of the poultry workforce that is Marshallese, so Marshall Islanders. There's a large population in the United States because we tested atomic bombs near their islands in the 50s and 60s and made it, you know, unhealthy for them to live there. Now they're in the U.S. and under the Federal Welfare Reform Act of 1996, they like aren't eligible for even Medicaid or Medicare. So if they're not getting insurance through their employer, they have no health coverage at all. So that has sort of created this real major problem where if you know you don't have insurance through your employer, people are not going to go get a coronavirus test if it's going to cost them two thousand dollars out of pocket, which is a problem for people who are getting sick, but it's also a problem for the people they're coming into contact with at their job, you know, in their household, at family gatherings. It's just a real, real issue that I has not really been adequately addressed by any of the major companies. Well, and I think that's something that people tend to forget about. You know, I, I would make a guess that a lot of our listeners in particular are probably in positions where they don't necessarily have to worry about their health coverage. I'm sure that there are plenty who are, but you know, as, as you were just kind of speaking to, making sure that everybody in the state has adequate access to healthcare affects us all, whether it's in terms of, you know, the ability to reach a hospital to make sure a hospital doesn't get overtaken, but also just in the amount of money that states have to pay into things later to take care of a uh, aging and, and less healthy population. What are some trends that you've seen, you know, across the Southeast about how low public health can have negative state and regional consequences? Yeah, well, I mean, it kind of goes, you know, in terms of hospitals, it all goes back to to just the cost of giving care to an uninsured population. So, you know, if your hospital, if your nearest emergency room is closed and you're uninsured and you call 911 and you take an ambulance ride that maybe costs you like four or $500 or, you know, 30 minutes to the nearest hospital, however long it is, you're not gonna, probably not going to be able to pay that. That cost is going to be floated by the hospital or by the ambulance service or whatever it might be. And then the cost of your care is also going to be floated by the hospital likely. You know, that just has trickle effects that make it so that the quality of care that health institutions are able to provide is just much lower because they don't have, you know, rural hospitals especially don't have a sort of pool of like wealthy patients and then a pool of poor patients whose care like the wealthy patients insurance or whatever it is might help cover. They have primarily a pool of poor patients who, you know, many of whom in non-Medicaid expansion states are uninsured. In terms of the coronavirus, you know, if people aren't getting the care that they need, public health is public health, right? So if someone in your neighborhood has the virus and never gets tested and is, you know, out working at the grocery store, working at the poultry plant or whatever, because they can't get a doctor's note excusing them from work or they can't afford to take 14 days off to quarantine, that is going to spread this virus. So it really is just like it all kind of spreads, you know, one person's health condition especially when you're talking about an infectious disease, really has effects on the community that they're in. 
It's interesting because, you know, a lot of what we've talked about goes back to the impacts, particularly on rural hospitals. We've talked a little bit about Missouri, who just recently voted to expand Medicaid in a public referendum, which aren't available in many southern states. But one thing that was kind of fascinating was that the rural population overwhelmingly voted against it. It passed in you know places like St. Louis and the St. Louis suburbs and exurbs and Kansas City and other larger communities in Missouri. Why do you think it is that you know, it's it's failed to catch on in rural parts of the South and of the country. Yeah. And I think, you know, that sort of rural divide is different. It's going to be a little different state to state. But I've been thinking about this Missouri thing because it kind of surprised me, to be honest. But I think there there is a couple things, right? So like rural Missouri is very white. So that's, you know, that's one thing. White voters, white rural voters are very conservative, especially in the South. Missouri is questionably the South, but it shares a lot in common, especially in the rural parts. So that's one thing. I also think, you know, I've been thinking a lot about how the pandemic has impacted candidates, but also just like issue organizers' ability to get out the message of what they're saying. And so some of the rural organizing groups that I profiled in the South, so like in North Carolina, even in Alabama, a lot of their work is like meeting up in person, going door to door, knocking doors, bringing people together in groups, you know, sort of going to rural places and saying like, we're here, we want to learn from you what your needs are. And we want also to teach you like, you know, here's some of the political issues that might actually be able to help you like in North Carolina, big ones, Medicaid expansion and like minimum wage increase. They're just not really able to do that work right now. Same thing with, you know, canvassing for more progressive candidates on a local level. You can't go door to door. Down home North Carolina, which is one of the rural organizations I actually profiled right before the pandemic. So it's like one of my last pieces before the pandemic is about these rural organizing efforts. They've moved all of their events to Zoom, which is useful in some ways. But the other thing is, you know, in a ton of the rural South, there's just no internet. Like you don't have broadband access, which has been a problem for uh, healthcare access is, you know, we've moved to telehealth. And there's also a problem just for getting information to people. So I think, you know, this is totally me speculating, but I do think that especially with issues like healthcare, where Obamacare and you know the ACA have been vilified and villainized so much by Republicans, who are so often also the only political party that's going out to rural areas to begin with. I mean, the Democratic Party has completely disinvested from rural from the South, first of all, the national level, but then on the state level, a lot of the state Democratic parties aren't even trying. I think there is just an information gap where people aren't actually aware what the policy necessarily that they're voting on is, or there might be. Some people might just be like, I don't want more government spending. And that, you know, that is fine. But I do think that there is a level of politicization of the healthcare issue over the you know last decade and a half. And then just, there's not a lot of voters in rural areas. And so you have to really incentivize political parties and, you know, state level and national level candidates to go to those communities. For the ballot initiative in Missouri, one of the things I was thinking about is when you're trying to get a ballot initiative passed, you're just looking for the most votes you can get. So, you know, you're going to go canvas the urban areas, you're going to go canvas the dense places. That's where you're going to go. You're not necessarily going to go out to, you know, (laughs) like the rural, you know, foothills or whatever. That's because it's not convenient for you. Yeah. And you want to maximize your efforts in a short amount of time, particularly with the pandemic. For listeners who either one, you know, maybe struggling with health issues and healthcare coverage issues themselves, or two, you know, want to get involved in trying to improve health outcomes in the South. You know, are there some steps you can offer? Are there some groups you can point to getting involved with? 
Yeah. So I, like I said, Downhill North Carolina is a rural organizing group in North Carolina and they're county-based. So they have chapters in various rural counties in North Carolina and they're doing both issue-based work like working on Medicaid expansion and some other things, and then also have a few candidates that they're running for local office. And then Hometown Action in Alabama is another group that I've spoken with doing sort of similar work. Uh, They're a little more Medicare for all and a little less Medicaid expansion. I truly just think one of the things that is not emphasized enough, but people should be in touch with their state representatives, with their local representatives, and say like, here's my situation. What are you actually doing to help me? I think especially right now, as state houses are, and, you know, the federal government is struggling to come pull together a response to the pandemic, an adequate response to the pandemic anywhere, it can really have an impact, especially on the local and state level to contact your representatives, because they are hearing from corporations and they are hearing from businesses for sure. And they're probably hearing less from their constituents. Looking ahead the next couple of months, What is it you will be watching for to see how the South is changing? And what is it that you think national narratives will probably get wrong about the Southeast? I am really interested to see how state races, you know, attempts to flip state House or state Senate seats go during this pandemic. I know there's a lot of candidates that people have been excited about, you know, trying to unseat incumbents. I don't know how well that will, that kind of campaigning can go in a pandemic when you can't go door to door and when you're basically just doing Facebook lives and, you know, leaving cards in someone's mailbox. So I will be watching state legislatures because I just don't know what's going to happen. And I I don't really think anybody knows what's going to happen. In terms of, you know, congressional races, obviously everybody's watching Georgia. And there's a couple of House races that I think even if the seats don't flip could be interesting. Um, So you have Joyce Elliott, who's a candidate running in Arkansas's 2nd District against French Hill, who's a pretty vulnerable Republican in a district that's could be leading Democratic. I don't know if she'll win, but she could get close. I think that what the national media is going to miss, as they often do, is, again, state parties' outreach to marginalized communities. So um, whether that's rural voters, voters of color, Black voters, Latinx voters, you know, in Texas, that is the story. But I do think that I think often there is institutional reluctance from national and state level parties to reach out to groups whose votes have been suppressed for a long time. And that that is not the fault of the people whose votes are suppressed, but is perhaps instead the fault of the national and state level parties. And so I think understanding where the power lies is really important and something that I think that national media often misses when they're coming to cover down here. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me, John. And that's our show. So many other issues we're going to be discussing this season do affect public health, and it can feel a little daunting and overwhelming when you think about all the work that's still to be done. But the more that we do on the front end, the less health care is going to cost on the back end for everybody. Special thanks to Dr. Andrea Patterson and Olivia Pascal for sharing their insights with us this week. On the next episode, we'll be discussing the politics of football. It should be a good one. This episode was executive produced and co-hosted by me, John Hammontree. And me, R.L. Nave. It was edited by Abby Gibson at Edit Audio. If you like the show, please subscribe, share with your friends, and leave us a review. It'll help us spread the word about all the great stories coming out of the South. And go check out our new website, ReckonSouth.com. Follow us everywhere on social media. We even have a TikTok now. And sign up for our newsletters. And until next time, thanks for reckoning with us. <laughs>